Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast, where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Damien, you're up this week, so what do you have for us for the table today? Yeah, so today I'm looking forward to having a conversation about the fact that Maryland has recently become the first state to repeal its law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights. And what Maryland has done to enact police accountability measures around the use of force and for how police are investigated and disciplined. And, uh, you know, all of this is huge, right? It's it's huge mm-hmm. because Maryland was actually one of the very first states to initiate uh, and implement, if you will, a law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights. And now it has become the first state to repeal it. Um, but more importantly than that, I think, this is long overdue, right? Yeah. You know, and and I'm hoping that it's a step in the right direction in pushing other states to take similar action as well. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but given sort of everything that's going on in our country right now around police brutality and state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people, uh, I'm really hoping that this kind of action and, uh, and accountability leads us in the direction of where we actually need to go and, you know, where you and I both believe we need to go, uh, and that's abolition. Mm-hmm. So um, before our conversation today, I've brought two pieces from the Washington Post to the table. The first is a piece that was published back in August of last year called There's a Reason It's Hard to Discipline Police. It starts with a Bill of Rights 47 years ago, which I think sets some good historical context about what the Bill of Rights is and what it has meant for policing in Maryland over uh, the years. And the second piece was published just earlier this month, and it's called Maryland Enacts Landmark Police Overhaul, First State to Repeal Police Bill of Rights. And that one really reports on how this repeal came to happen, the reactions on both sides to it, um, and, and what it means for law enforcement in Maryland moving forward. And so I'm excited for us to talk about police accountability today uh, and and really sort of using Maryland as the context, but I'm sure we're going uh, to go many places. So uh, where do you want to start, Aaron? So yeah, I'd, first I want to agree with what you said a little bit ago. I think this is really uh, definitely long overdue. Yeah. Um, there were some small modifications made to the Bill of Rights um, following the death of Freddie Gray mm-hmm. um, that we actually kind of talked about when we were talking about Baltimore Rising, that that documentary a few weeks ago. Um, but it wasn't a lot because uh, most of this law stayed intact. Right. Um, and so I think I want to start mostly with some of the history of this and why it's been so difficult and taking so taken so long to undo. Uh, and this so this was passed back in 1974 which we've actually mentioned here before yeah. on the podcast. And so that was in the wake of Richard Nixon being elected into office um, and as the president. And his campaign really focused on law and order um, as it's kind of one of its main pillars and, and slogans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, there was a big focus on reducing crime and increase, increasing police presence um, and, uh, and effectiveness 
Um, so this wasn't controversial at all, um, yep. right? Uh, it was socially accepted that we wanted to reduce crime uh, and, you know, the sort of crime wave, as it's frequently, you know, called uh, at the time. And the prevailing prevailing perspective, both then and now, mm. is that the police do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that... Um, one, I think there's there's a lot of complication to that per- that particular perspective um, that makes it not necessarily full the full story. Um, it's it's not the full story, right? Um, and I I also think that this moment in history that we're talking about is where police unions start to get a larger foothold in politics, uh, both in the state of Maryland, uh, which is what we're specifically talking about, but also nationally. Um, I think this is where the growth of police unions really starts. Yeah. Um, in terms of their kind of political strength. Um, and so they end up steering a lot more of the conversation of, uh, and policy regarding policing. Um, and so I'm actually going to quick tangent here because we're okay. talking about police unions, right? Um, and I, I think they're not really labor unions uh, in the traditional sense of, of a labor union um, because they do, they're, they're sort of um, their own little bubble. Right. They don't right. work with other labor unions in a labor kind of movement thing. Like they're not for workers at large. They're for their workers. Yes. Right? They're for their labor. Um, and so I think calling them unions isn't isn't the best um, label for them. But that's also like sort of what we're what it's the language what we're using right now. So, yeah, um, I just wanted to add that little point, um, you know, as the as the son of a, a labor member or a union member back in the day. So, um, but back to the point at hand, um, I think this bill of rights, uh, rapidly changed the landscape here in Maryland. Right. Yes. Um, you know, the Howard County police chief, um, just before this was passed was pushing for public disciplinary hearings before, before it was passed and then dropped it because the law didn't allow for that anymore. Uh, and then in our own County, Prince George's County, a commission, um, of civilians was told that they couldn't investigate police misconduct at all because of this law. And so that was in the mm. late 70s, I think. Yeah. Um, so this changed the landscape pretty radically and pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm I'm really glad you started out with history, actually. And and I'm glad because the articles that we read didn't talk about Nixon and didn't reference all of that. So yeah. you, you sort of brought that and I, I appreciate that. And, you know, there was a lot here in these articles. And it was definitely a lot to, to process. You know, I think for one, it was so interesting to learn about the history of this law enforcement officer's bill of rights and, and how this bill of rights came to be in Maryland, right? Like Mm -hmm. I had no idea uh, that Maryland's bill of rights for police officers was enacted almost 50 years ago. Like I just didn't have the sense of that timeline until I read this. And, um, I certainly had no idea how it came to be, you know, in the one article referenced how there were 50 officers that that came to the Maryland State Capitol to testify in support of it. And so, you know, that was sort of a fascinating piece to learn. And it was very interesting to learn uh, that at the time of its proposal, and you just sort of mentioned this, that, you know, this bill seemingly was not controversial at all, right? No, like it sort of just all. easily passed and... Um, unanimously, I Unanimously. Think. Yeah. Um, and... I don't know. That's wild to me because I think, you know, that's despite the fact that police brutality and police police misconduct was absolutely a thing in Maryland and across the country in the 1970s and before the 1970s. Right. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of policing um, and police interactions with communities of color. 
you know, it's just the nature of the beast. Like that's how it has been. That's how it is. Um, and so to learn that this bill of rights was passed here in Maryland in the seventies and, you know, it did so much, right. So, you know, to sort of quickly highlight, right. It afforded police officers certain rights, like having a formal waiting period before they had to cooperate with internal investigations of misconduct. Five days, five, five, day waiting five period. whole days. Yeah. Um, it, you know, allowed for the scrubbing of records of complaints that were brought against police officers and it barred civilian oversight in police investigations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly reading all about that and sort of understanding this, right, is, is, was honestly just a bit of a gut punch, you know, especially given what's going on right now here in Maryland. I mean, you talk about what's happening in the county. You mentioned, you know, what happened just down the street from us in our last episode, um, but also sort of what's happening ac- across the country. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of wild to me. Um, but I think this also this article also then pointed out several cases of police misconduct and ways in which the police used this Bill of Rights to their advantage as soon as it was the law of the land in the state, right? Yeah. You know, it, it didn't take them long at all to sort of hide behind this bill and to use it to protect themselves against accountability, right? Like the, the one article sort of outlines several examples um, in which it did that, uh, in which police did that. And so... I, you know, all of this, as I said, was just a lot to process. But, I, you know, I also certainly fully recognize that I have the broader context, uh, you know, and we have the broader context of the fact that we've had 50 years since then of evidence. And, of course, history books full of additional evidence of what law enforcement has done in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen over and over again what these Bill of Rights have done in terms of preventing us from holding law enforcement accountable for their actions. You know, one of the articles mentioned a few examples, uh, but, you know, the one that stood out to me and you just mentioned uh, Freddie Gray was the the Freddie Gray case. Right. And um, it's certainly a pivotal moment for the state of Maryland in this conversation about law enforcement. Right. Um, And so, you know, again, all that to say, I think there are countless reasons and examples of of how these laws and protections for for police officers are just dangerous. and so, like I said, a lot to process. It was a lot to get through this. Yeah. Um, but certainly with all of this history and context, I'm I'm certainly relieved that the state of Maryland has repealed it. Yeah, I think relief um, relief is, is a good word for me too in terms of how I feel about it being repealed, right? Um, I think repeal gives space for new ideas around police accountability. Yes. So I'm all for that. Um, I'm excited that police won't have that five-day waiting period that, that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my hope is that this changes how police interact with the community as the advocates for these reforms uh, believe that they will um, because we do need some pretty radical shifts in attitudes and perceptions um, really quickly Yeah, um, because misconduct and brutality are happening all the time, way yeah. too frequently. Wait, the, Yeah. Um, but so I'm, I'm also skeptical that, that this is going to be the thing that creates that culture shift all by itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I hope it does, but I'm skeptical. Um, and I think there's definitely more work to do here. I don't think that this is the end of, of the road, uh, in terms of accountability. Um, right. Um, so, you know, just to break down and add a few things about what this 
you know, the, the Bill of Rights was repealed and then another law was passed that sort of connected the dots on what police accountability would look like now. Yep. Right. Uh, and so that included uh, the following things. And I don't think this law, this list is exhaustive, um, but it included at least these things. Right. So civilian participation in disciplinary boards, mandatory use of body cameras, use of force standards that prioritize de-escalation tactics, quote unquote, better training, quote unquote, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it bans police departments from acquiring surplus military equipment and it restricts no knock warrants. Hmm. Right. So I think a lot of those things sound great mm-hmm. on their face and sound like they'll be helpful in holding police accountable for misconduct and perhaps leading to that change in attitudes and perceptions and behavior and brutality and misconduct. However, um, I think these really seem like reformist policies of the police and not abolitionist steps. Yes. Right. And so um, Critical Resistance uh, is an organization we've mentioned on the podcast before, um, I think in different pieces of application and or homework yep. as, a, as a resource for abolitionist kind of um, education uh, and learning. Um, and so they, they release this chart that lays out some difference, some differences between what they call reformist reforms and abolitionist steps. So they ask four questions that guide whether or not something's reformist or abolitionist. And the questions that they ask, um, are pretty straightforward. Um, so the first is, does this funding, does this reduce funding to police? So that's one. Number two, does this challenge the notion that police increase safety? Number three, does this reduce the tools, tactics, and technology police have at their disposal? And then number four is, does this reduce the scale of policing? Mm. And I think almost all of the pieces of the legislation that this legislation includes are actually listed as reformist reforms on this PDF, on this document. Yep. Um, Mm based on the guide. So um, this is another reason I think I'm skeptical Yeah, is because I think that this will potentially lead to Maryland continuing to, and I'm going to flip what our sort of speaking, how we, how we usually speak about this stuff. It's going to continue to defund healthcare, education, and other public services that are necessary and helpful to building communities so that we can get some better training that tells police to stop, shoot, stop the, uh, the shoot first, ask questions later approach that they seem to have right now. So, you know, that's what it is, right? Like yeah. we talk about defunding the police and that is a a means to an end to increase funding for community based programs, right? Or or things in the budget, right? Like education and healthcare and housing, public housing, those kinds of things. And instead, we spend millions and millions on policing. And so if we're going to continue to fund training and we're going to add funding to training, we're going to add funding to police departments, to get more body cameras. We're going to sort of pay them more money to hold them accountable. Yeah. Right. Like, so, and thereby defund other things that we need more, right? Like, yeah. you know, education and things that also are part of public safety. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, it's, that's fascinating. And I, so I appreciate how you applied what critical resistance uh, those questions that they ask uh, to this bill, right? Uh, and to this repeal, I should say, of this bill. Um, 
And I think, you know, as you laid it out, I think your skepticism is totally valid, right? Um, it's really interesting to think about the, the concept of police community interactions and what that could and should look like, right? And how mm-hmm. so far we are from that. Um, and, you know, while I think this, this repeal um, has done and represents, you know, some significant work to uh, hold police accountable. And I think, you know, some of the reactions to that, you know, that are laid out in the article sort of speak to that. Uh, I, I certainly agree with you and our friends in critical resistance on the need for more abolitionist action, like true abolitionist action. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you just so uh, beautifully laid it out there, you know, this may or may not be it. Uh, and it's not to say that this isn't work and that this isn't sort of, um, you know, as the article's title mentions, like landmark, you know, sort of work um, and a step in the direction of where we need to go after all these years. Right. But is it enough? Yeah. I mean, I think it's big, right? Like, yeah, we, Maryland, passed the first Bill of Rights for law enforcement officers and is the first to repeal it. Yeah. Right. So I think that that is big because um, I wonder what that means for sort of other states that have passed similar legislation. Um, like, is that something that is up for, for more sort of public debate? Yeah. And so that, I think that is a potentially a helpful thing in terms of, um, being kind of a bellwether, I guess, uh, across the country. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, other, other legislators in different states, states. seeing that, oh, maybe this is something we could do and think about how, these laws can can be changed mm-hmm. um, in our own state, but um, and hopefully take it a step further. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, all this sort of makes me think of something else that stood out to me as I was reading these articles. You know, I think one of the toughest parts of the article, particularly the one from last August, um, was reading what police officers had to say about their jobs. You know, when the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights was passed in the 70s, as we mentioned here in Maryland, um, I I said and I mentioned that there were 50 police officers who came to the state capitol to testify in support of it. And the article talks about how those police officers shared stories of being wrongfully disciplined by um, uh, police chiefs and how there was low morale for police officers in departments across the state and how they felt that they needed legal protections in order to do their job and to, to fight crime. And I think boldly so, they also threatened lawmakers who didn't agree with them and, you know, who didn't want to work to pass this Bill of Rights. You know, officers actually warned lawmakers that they would suffer at the polls if they didn't support this bill. And, you know, I don't know, I, I really struggled with all of that, you know, because I think it's all so closely connected to this rhetoric that we've heard over and over again about how difficult it is to be a police officer and how dangerous of a job it is. And I don't necessarily disagree with that sentiment. However, and I, and I want to be crystal clear about this, I, I think we've seen over and over again how it's seemingly only difficult to be a police officer and that the job is dangerous when police are interacting with people of color, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen footage of 
and read news stories uh, of police officers interacting with armed and dangerous white people in very dangerous situations, in situations that police put continue to put them themselves at risk. Um, and those white people somehow live to tell their stories. Uh, you know, we even watched what happened at the United States Capitol back in January, right? You know, yeah. an, an actual attempted coup in this country. But then you juxtapose that with all of the videos and news stories we have watched and read of police officer interactions with black and brown folks, young and old. You know, most recently we've been introduced to Makia Bryant, who is, you know, was a 16 year old black girl who should very much so be alive right now, but isn't uh, because police officers in Columbus, Ohio shot and killed her. And I I don't know, you know, my question is, why is it that we have whole ass T-shirts and murals and countless hashtags? And why is it that they are only of black and brown people who have been killed by the police? You know, I think we are just well beyond the point of having sufficient evidence that law enforcement is corrupt and that law enforcement is not here to serve and protect black and brown people in this country. And I think is out here um, actively working against us. Right. And in, in the interest of our safety. And so, you know, that, that was heavy. And um, I also think what you just said is, is right. As I say that I, you know, I applaud Maryland for taking this step to repeal you know, this bill of rights. And I certainly encourage other states to follow suit. But I think to your point, you know, and, and generally when I'm thinking about law enforcement and accountability and abolishing the police and getting us there, it's not enough. Yeah. I think you're right. There's so much evidence, um, that we've accumulated, um, over the course of history. Um, I think we need to unpack the history of policing too, right? Yes. Like when your profession is based on slave patrols and evolved out of slave patrols, it might be time to take a critical look at yourself and fundamentally rethink your approach to your role in society. Yes. So that, you know, and for all of us collectively to take a critical approach and a critical, put a critical lens on policing and think about, is it doing what we think it is doing and sort of, preventing crime and, and doing all these things. And I think we'll, you know, we're shifting into some applications, some homework here in a, in a minute or so, but where I think we'll talk a little bit more about where we can learn more about those things. But yeah, that critical look, I think we need to do because it evolved out of slave patrols. Absolutely. Well, and I don't know, this is sort of off the cuff, but <laughs> you know, I, I think that none of that is going to happen. Uh, you know, we have to take, you talk about, we have to take this critical look, um, and, and really examine it, uh, and really work to make change. I, I'm struggling with sort of all the events that especially recently have happened in this, in this past week, uh, with, the um, Derek Chauvin trial and now Makia Bryant sort of the same day and, and all of this and, and thinking about this critical look, I don't know that things are going to change, uh, unless white people get in this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really needs to be. And if, you know, if you're a white person listening and trying to think about what you can do, I, I think white people need to be loud about this and, and, um, angry about this and demanding about this because I, I don't think anything's going to change until, uh, white people are with us. And I'm not saying all white people aren't with us, uh, but, 
uh, to me, that seemingly is going to be the only way that this actually changes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we need coalition building and yes. joining together on yes. this. Absolutely. All right. So you you mentioned application. Let's go there. You know, I think, honestly, there are probably countless applications of yeah, all of this, yeah. right? Um, especially given just how pressing of an issue police accountability and the call for abolition is in our society, the need for abolition is in our society. Um, I think, you know, I think one thing is that this is what's happening in Maryland. And so I think this highlights the importance of getting a sense of what's happening in every state that has a law enforcement officer's bill of rights and other protections with police unions, like you mentioned. Um, and I think if you are from a state or live in a state that has this, it's important to learn more about it, right? And, and look into if there's any proposed legislation to appeal it. And if not, you know, now is the time to figure out what work you can do to contact your representatives and, and advocate for that. And, you know, sort of related to that, I think repealing these bills is just the absolute minimum at this point, right? You know, I, I think we've made this point very clear. You know, we are at this critical juncture, I think, as a nation and as a society where we can no longer push this issue to the side. You know, I think we have to tackle this issue of police accountability and in truly engage in the conversation and the work that gets us to a reimagined definition and, and concept of what public safety is and what public safety is for all of us. Yes. Um, you know, because as I said earlier, I think just enough is enough, you know, and we have lost far too many black and brown lives uh, to the police for us to keep the system in place. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think as, as I think about application, I'm thinking about specifically, I think how this, uh, the repeal of this law and the um, sort of passage of the, the second law that came after it. Yeah. Um, the sort of the book ended pieces um, thinking about how that's applying. Uh, and so the rollout of a lot of these pieces are, are staggered. So it's not taking effect immediately here mm, in Maryland. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see how it actually rolls out over time. Uh, and if it will change anything fundamentally in police interactions with the public in Maryland. Um, again, I, you know, I already said it's been a, it's been a while talking about how I'm skeptical of that. Mm. Um, and yeah. And so just, you know, I think taking a look around our own areas where we live, um, and looking into how these laws exist in different spaces and in different ways, I think is also super important in terms of trying to find new ways of police accountability, again, in steps toward finding new ways to be safe with one another in, in public and what public safety really means. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point about the rollout of this being staggered. I don't think we mentioned that until you just said it. So yeah. that's, that, that is true. And so I guess we will definitely have to sort of wait and see how, how this goes uh, here in the state and with yeah. the rollout. Yeah. Cause there's some stuff that I think takes effect next year in 2022. And there's yep. some stuff that I think said 2024 five, or five. five yeah. So there, there are things that are like sort of, Slow, slow rollout. Yes. Um, to this. Absolutely. Uh, law. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's shift to homework now. You know, we have mentioned a couple of books related to this topic before in previous episodes. And I think after 
sort of reading about this and we've been talking about this all week and and you know we're talking about it now i think these books have just moved up to the top of uh, i'm going to go ahead and say our collective reading list yeah. uh and so I, you know i think we're going to do some work to to order these two books you know for one i want to read alex vital's book the end of policing um because you know it really looks at and examines the many many of the flaws of reformist policing and proposes alternatives to policing. And, you know, as I just said, I think we are certainly beyond uh, in need of that at this point. And that book is also, I think, from like 2017 is when right. it's published. So it's been around for a few years. Yes. Yeah. Good, good point. Um, and you, my friend, have mentioned Miriam Kaba's book, We Do This Till We Free Us, uh-huh. uh, which is a collection of essays and, and interviews. And uh, Miriam sort of talks about abolition and and the, the concept of transformative public safety. Um, and so I, and I know that there are certainly more books and resources out there on this topic. We've talked about some. There are plenty out there. But, you know, I'm suggesting that these two books be sort of immediate homework for us and 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 topics and media on the table for upcoming episodes. What do you think? Maybe in a few weeks? Yeah, let's do those uh, sometime in the next month or so. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so I think my homework um, is also, as we've been talking, I've thought of another one. Okay. So, uh, my homework is to try to feel out that anxiety that we have when we talk about abolition. Yeah. Um, because... Um, I think abolition sounds like um, um, it's it sounds like tearing something down. Yep. And that's it. Um, and it's actually building something. Um, it's about building things. Right. Yes. Um, and building new ways of being. Um, so for me, I think it's personally something that like the anxiety for me has faded. Um, I still get anxious talking about it um, in public. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I don't think you're and I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I because yeah, I'm not, um, yeah, not alone in that. Absolutely, um, but I think uh, so. Continuing to to work on that for me because um, there's always something more to learn and unpack, right? About yeah. what that anxiety is and what it means and and that that stuff. So, um, and that's the whole point of what we're doing here. On absolutely. The podcast, right? Yeah. So, um, I want to recommend that chart that I talked about by Critical Resistance because it's simple and clear. Um, and also, I didn't I, I mentioned their questions, but they have uh, two different charts on the on the or two different lists of potential reforms or steps. Yes. Um, and you know, I said nearly all of the things that are in this law don't meet those criteria. They're like literally most of them are listed as they things are. that are reformist, um, reformist reforms. So. Um, but I recommend that chart, uh, in terms of thinking about what police abolition is or what, what effective reform steps might look like. Cause it's simple and clear. Um, the Highlander center is currently doing a series, at least they have been over the last few days about abolition on, um, Instagram. Okay. Um, and social media. And so it's been challenging some notions about police and public safety. So I recommend that because it's an easy to digest set of ideas around things and sort of common uh, uh, questions that people have when you start talking about abolition of like, what about X, Y, Z, like sort of issue or concern. Yeah. Okay. And sort of answering those frequently asked questions, if you will. Uh, The other piece I thought about was the breathe act. Yes. Um, Which is 
um, a piece of legislation proposed by the movement for black lives and activists within the, that organization, um, and organizers and policymakers, um, that addresses a lot of different things, but part of it is police accountability and reform and defunding and yes. right different pieces. Um, so I suggest folks look into that too, to see that, um, see what, see what kind of proposals are present in that kind of legislation. Yeah. And I'm going to mess up the name here, but that's sort of the alternative legislation to, I think what's being pushed now, uh, yeah. the George justice for in policing act with George Floyd's name in it. Yeah. Um, you know, that I think uh, folks like the movement for black lives and others, and I think we sort of believe this too, that doesn't do enough, right? And sort of keeps yeah. us in this sort of reformist reform and as opposed yeah. to, you know, taking some true abolitionist steps, right? Yeah, because it, it touches on, and I haven't looked much into that that bill uh, and that proposal, but there's a lot of like talk about more training and, and yeah. different, like sort of different ways to do the same thing. Right. Um, if I over oversimplify myself, uh, and, and that act to one thing, uh, I think that's what it is. And so it's just continued um, funding and, and stuff uh, Absolutely. for things that we, as we said, have lots of evidence are not uh, helpful or useful or producing public safety or reducing crime as we believe that they do and yeah. like all that. So, um, yeah, that's those, a- those are the two big pieces of legislation I think people are talking about when we're talking about policing Yeah, um, is the Breathe Act and the I think George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Yes, that's it. Yeah. All right. I appreciate that. And, you know, I also want to echo the recommendation to check out that chart by Critical Resistance. Um, it's, I, I, Aaron just shared it with me earlier today. So it's a, but it's a very good resource to understand, I think, the differences between, as we said, reformist reforms and, and abolition and policing. And so I definitely um, encourage folks to, to check it out if you sort of Google critical resistance and reformist reforms versus abolitionist steps in policing, uh, you shall get it. So check that out. Um, All right, Aaron, you are up next week, my friend. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? I'm going to bring a documentary called All In the Fight for Democracy to the table. Okay. Um, So it's about voter registration, sorry, voter suppression in the U.S. So the opposite of registration. Yes, quite literally. Um, (laughs) And how it happens uh, in in different ways across the country. Uh, so it features Stacey Abrams and a bunch mm. of other people talking about showing instances of voter suppression. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, you know, we already had a documentary featuring my friends Barack and Michelle. Yeah. Now you're bringing my friend Stacey. Uh-huh. Yeah, your friends. My friends. <laughs> your yeah. friends. Yes. Hey, you're my friend. So let's let's be yes. clear. You know, <laughs> let's not get too jokey here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I've I've seen and heard about that documentary, and so I'm really looking forward to to watching it. Very good. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do here, but in case you forgot, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with all of the people in your life, and of course, please follow us on social media. Yes, yes, and thank you all for listening so much. We appreciate it, Uh, and remember, it's not about us, but it is about us, and we'll talk to you next week.